Our topic, the deceitfulness of sin, a very important topic. And I'm going to read from Hebrews. Our text is going to be verses uh, 3, 12, and 13. But I'm going to read a little extra here. I'll begin at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as as in the rebellion. He's quoting Psalm 95, which is describing the Jews' rebellion in the wilderness, where the whole generation died in the wilderness. In the day of the trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And here's our text. Beware, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And I'll stop there. In Hebrews 12 and following, we come to a very important application that flows from Paul's quote of Psalm 95 in verses 7 to 11 regarding the apostasy of the vast majority of Israelites in the desert. The lessons of Israel's rebellion are now driven home with strong, explicit exhortations. <coughs> the Israelites could not enter into rest and the blessings of the land of Canaan because of unbelief. These Israelites were hardened in their sins. They, they did not understand the deceitfulness of sin and thus were damned in unbelief and those still wedded to their uh, and they were still wedded to their evil world system. The Holy Spirit has recorded the failures of Israel for us in the New Covenant Church to learn the lessons of their mistakes. And Paul forms the same kind of argument in 1 Corinthians 10, 6-11, where he says that the history of Israel in the desert are our examples, this is uh, verse 8, our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. That's verse 7. They became um, idolaters, verse 7. They committed sexual immorality, verse 8. They tempted Christ, verse 9. They complained against God, verse 10. This record of rebellion and apostasy was written for our admonition, verse 11. So we have, obviously, doctrine, epistles, doctrine. We have history, a lot of history. The Old Testament's full of history. Why do we have history? Well, we learn from history. We apply the doctrine to the history, and we learn the lessons of history. Therefore, this is verse 12, let him who thinks to stand take heed lest he fall. Verse 12. The experience of the unbelieving, rebellious Israelites serves as a strong warning to all Christians to examine themselves and each other in a loving manner to make sure that we do not have sinful, unbelieving hearts. Remember, the problem of sin is an unbelief problem. Unbelief always leads to sin. Unbelief and sin hold hands, as it were, as belief, true faith, and obedience always follows. Unbelief is what makes professing Christians unreliable, self-centered, and rebellious. It leads to a lack of Christian contentment, a lack of thankfulness, and complaining against God. 
And this topic will lead us to a number of exhortations. First, a command to avoid the great evil of unbelief, which causes one to depart from the true living God, Yahweh. Number uh, Second, an exhortation to mutual edification between each other, to assist one another in avoiding unbelief and such departing. <clears throat> Third, this exhortation is accompanied by a reason, which is the danger of being hardened in the by the deceitfulness of sin. And then fourth, and a final overarching reason which is given, which is that perseverance at the very end is proof that one is a partaker of Christ. I've actually changed the fourth point, but we'll get to that when I get to it. So let us carefully examine each point for ratification. First, the evil of unbelief, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now regarding this exhortation, on avoiding unbelief, there are a number of things to consider. First, this is a bro uh, there is a brotherly call for self-examination regarding unbelief in the heart. And this command makes perfect sense in that we are to watch against entering into temptation <clears throat> on every occasion that might lead us into sin. Now, if we are to watch and pray against temptations and sin, and that's from the Lord speaking in the Garden of Gethsemane, He's about to be arrested. Watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. I think he repeats it a couple times. Then we should carefully examine our thinking regarding unbelief, which is the foundation and fountain of sin. <clears throat> the author of Hebrews tells us that the reason Israel in the wilderness was disobedient, rebellious, full of complaints against God, and the reason they apostatized was unbelief. Unbelief is the source of sin and apostasy. Unbelief is the reason that professing Christians disagree with Scripture and begin making up autonomous ethics and worship. Belief, or faith, is the reason we obey. Okay, Unbelievers commit adultery. They have mistresses. Most of them do. They have mistresses. They commit adultery. They visit prostitutes, etc. Why? Well, they don't believe. They don't see any consequences. Believers, they believe. They obey scripture. They know that's wrong and they won't do it. In the section of the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith of these saints is all noted by their obedience to the commands. God makes promises. Some of the promises on a human level seem kind of unreasonable. Your wife's 99 years old and God's telling you you're going to have a child by that wife. Well, she hasn't been able to bear children for six, you know, 50 at least 50 years. But God makes a promise. And what does Abraham do? He believes the promise. Now the verb translated take heed or beware, blepete, blepete, means to see or to behold. It's the verb for to see. <coughs> At times it is translated consider. No one can actually see the heart or mind, and the idea here is to look at our life and our obedience to determine if our faith is strong and sincere. We can't see the heart. We can't see the mind. We're not mind readers. So we look at the fruits. If we disregard what the Word of God says, or make excuses for disobedience, or substitute pagan ideas for Christian thinking, or complain about the teaching of Scripture, there is a problem that must be observed and repented of. 
Now, you may not agree with, at first reading, you may not agree with everything in the Bible. But you submit to it because you know it's the Word of God and you know that you're wrong and the Bible's right. It doesn't matter how you feel. You have to get your thinking and your emotions in line with what Scripture says because we know that the Word of God is always right. If, you, if your thinking contradicts the Word of God, you know that you're wrong. These are matters that merit prayer and a diligent fight to overcome them. Unbelief in those who outwardly profess the truth can only be identified by one's inconsistent speech and lifestyle. <clears throat> Paul is exhorting against a blind confidence in a profession of faith without attending good works. Oh, I walked the aisle. I made a profession of faith. I've signed a card. I'm a Christian no matter what I do. And that's actually taught by dispensationalism. We teach the perseverance of the saints. We persevere, but we persevere in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. They teach a perversion of that, which is once saved, always saved, no matter how you live. That's antinomianism. And so you have people arguing, well, Elvis Presley went to heaven. He was certainly a Christian. Because when he was uh, 16 years old, he walked to the front of the church in a Baptist church, and he got on his knees and he accepted Christ as his personal Savior. I've heard that argument. No, Elvis Presley was certainly not a Christian because he was a total whoremonger and a drug addict who never attended church. Proverbs 22, verse 3. A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Paul is speaking against what we call easy believism, complacency, or one who thinks he has faith but is self-deceived. We're not to be fooled by human tradition, false security, a redefining of the law, or what God requires, which is what the Pharisees did. When you're a legalist and you say we're saved by works, what do you do? You redefine the law downward so it's easier to keep. So the Pharisees said, look, I never touched a woman. And Jesus said, well, did you ever lust in your mind after a woman? Oh, well, all men have done that. Well, then that means you're guilty and you need a savior. They watered everything down because they believed in salvation by works. <coughs> Redefining what God requires, negligence, sloth, or modern antinomianism. God wants us to cast all of our cares upon him and trust him in everything, yet be watchful at the same time because of the deceitfulness of sin. We want to be like David who said in Psalm 18.23, I kept myself from my iniquity. Paul warns us in Corinthians of those who are sick, weak, and who have even fallen asleep, and that's an expression for dying, because of sin. Those are people in the Corinthian church. And of course you read 1 Corinthians and they had a problem. There were people fornicating. There were men who were visiting prostitutes. They had serious problems. We need to be continually armed. This is from 2 Samuel 23.7. Or filled with iron and the shaft of a spear. We need to be on guard and watch against sinful thinking and living. We must also be willing to ask for help and assistance from other Christians. The command, beware, is given to the church, the corporate people of God. It's plural, not singular. The assumption, and we'll get to this, the assumption is mutual aid and edification. And this observation is solidified in the next imperative in verse 13, examine one another daily. 
Okay, so that's the first point. Now let's look at the reason for watching. The reason. The reason that we need to beware <coughs> is because unbelief in the heart is evil. He says evil heart of unbelief. The word evil, depending on the context, can mean wicked. When it's talking about physical matters, it refers to a serious fatal disease like cancer. It can refer to somebody who's mischievous or destructive. In our passage, the focus is on wickedness, that which is opposed to God, Christ, and the truth. In all of its senses, however, it applies to unbelief. To doubt the veracity of God's word or to disobey the special revelation which God has given to us about his son is very wicked. For scripture is self-authenticating and perspicuous. It's clear. It's easy to understand. And yes, it is the very word of God. And yes, it is self-authenticating. It proves itself. And our scripture reading today was wonderful. And it fits some of the songs we were singing. Our New Testament scripture reading. Where, you know, tell us plainly where you're the Christ. Well, I told you, and you didn't believe. And then Christ says, look, the works that I do prove that I am who I said I am. And they still wouldn't believe. And then he, they, he told them, I am God. I am the Son of God. I am God, a very God. Come down from heaven to be born, to be united to uh, a human nature. I am God. And they denied that. And then once again, he appealed to the proofs, the works. This unbelief originates in a corrupt heart that loves sin. It is rooted in pride and hostility to God, which is especially wicked. This is before your time, but that, that Gore Vidal was a very famous author. He was a great writer. A wicked man, though. And uh, he hated William F. Buckley, who was a very strict Roman Catholic. Uh, old school Roman Catholic, Latin Mass and all that kind of stuff. And friends of Gore Vidal, one of the reasons he hated uh, Buckley was Buckley was a Christian, a professing Christian. Now, we'll leave aside the fact that he was a Romanist, which is a perversion of Christianity. And uh, Gore Vidal admitted, look, he's a homosexual. Gore Vidal's a homosexual. And if he believed in the true God, he would have to repent, and he doesn't want to repent. There's an honest man. People don't repent because they love their sin. It's not for lack of evidence. It's because of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. It is rooted in pride and hostility to God, which is especially wicked. The natural direction of the evil heart is to depart from the living God. <clears throat> this is an expression which in this context means to apostatize from biblical Christianity. <clears throat> for the Jews in that generation... And keep in mind, the book of Hebrews is written to, primarily to Christian Jews because there was a problem of Christian Jews going back to Judaism, Pharisaical Judaism. And trampling Christ underfoot is worthless. For the Jews in that generation who followed pressure from relatives as well as social and economic pressures were told that leaving Jesus of Nazareth was the way to return to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But such thinking is especially wicked and self-deceived, for Pharisaical Judaism is a man-made humanistic tradition. It has no more in, in common with the Old Testament than a cult does. Because they deny the prophecies about Christ. They deny what the Bible teaches about Christ. And Christ is the center of all of Scripture, from Genesis 
to Revelation. Jesus fulfilled perfectly fulfilled the messianic prophecies. The expression living God is, in the Greek is emphatic. While the apostate Jews believed they were turning to God, they in fact were becoming pagan idolaters. That's what Paul's saying. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. They think they're returning to Yahweh, but they're becoming pagan idolaters. Because the only way, in, the only, and that was in our scripture reading, the only way to God is through Christ. The only way to have your prayers and your worship accepted by God is through Christ. The only way to have your sins forgiven by God is through Christ. Yahweh is the living God, while all idols are dead gods, for they do not really exist. And the expression living God is an Old Testament, common Old Testament expression. Unbelief is the greatest evil in the universe, because it is the fountain of all evil thoughts, words, and acts. The whole human race was made to fall into sin and the whole universe was placed under a curse because Eve refused to believe God's word. Satan comes to her, has God said? Has he really said that? Come on, that's, Eve, that's unreasonable. That's unreasonable, Eve. Eve refused to believe God's word. All the Jews who left Egypt except a few died in the wilderness and were not allowed to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. All the lies of human philosophy, the cults, the false heathen religions, flow from a heart of unbelief. Men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and they create gross idolatry and all false religions due to unbelief. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 1, 18 and following. These false religions, where do they come from? They're made up by men, and probably with demonic help, to suppress the truth about Christ and God. To refuse to believe in Christ, Yahweh, and the true God, and the Bible is not some neutral or indifferent thing. It is positively evil, and it makes one a friend of the devil and an enemy of God. Unbelief brings with it a curse, a life dedicated to sin. Apostasy is simply the fruit of unbelief. When Paul warns believers about an evil heart of unbelief, he is not discussing regular pagans, who have never heard the gospel, although their unbelief is certainly wicked. We're not denying that. But the context here, he's talking about professing Christians who have hearts that are not firm in the faith. We do not expect unbelievers to have faith, but Christians who confess Christ for a while and then deliberately fall away have the wicked, faithless heart of a deserter. <coughs> Spiritual adulterers against God. They're the exact opposite of those who believe the promises and draw near to God through faith in Christ. True believers are grateful for covenant privileges. They have escaped the foolishness and defilements of the world through their belief in Christ. And here's no Paul's warning in Hebrews 6, 4-6. He explains the wickedness and danger of professing Christians rejecting the faith. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, <coughs> if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. These are people, they made a profession of faith, and they were in the New Covenant period of the church where there were miracles conducted on a weekly basis. There were 
tongues were still existed. Tongues don't exist now. They died out with the death of the apostles. They still had tongues. They had the translation of tongues, which is another miracle. They had uh, gifts of healing. They had miracles in the church weekly. They didn't have a completed canon, so God gave them miracles. These people saw that. They participated in that, yet they still did not believe. <clears throat> to forsake the living God through Jesus and Jesus Christ through unbelief is always a step into idolatry. It is an abandonment of the truth for the lie, a rejection of light for darkness, life for death, the gospel of Christ for human philosophy, holiness for the world. There was a problem of Hebrew professing Christians leaving Christ and returning to the false satanic religion of the Pharisaical Judaism. Due to social pressures and the love of the present world, they were turning their backs on Jesus Christ, the only way to the Father, to heaven, and on him alone who is the only true God. To the professing Christian, there is nothing more deadly, dangerous, and damning than unbelief. It is the evil of evils. You have to understand the pressure they were under. If you were a Jew and you professed Christ, you were disowned by your family. And the practice of, of Jews, even in the 20th century, was if you had one, a son who became a Christian, they would leave an empty spot at the table. They would never talk to him again because he betrayed Pharisaical Judaism because they have a hatred for Christ. Remember, uh, the Talmud, Pharisaical Judaism teaches that Jesus was a magician who did his works by the power of Beelzebub or Satan, that Christ was not born of a virgin, that Christ was born of fornication, Christ was a bastard. They teach that. That's the Talmud. The Jewish Talmud, 35 volumes, the Babylonian Talmud teaches that. So to return to that is to trample Christ underfoot as worthless and to believe the lies about him. Now many sins are spurred on by inner lusts and corruptions as they come in contact with temptations. But it is unbelief in the heart that breaks the dam against sin, for only real faith in the heart gives efficacy and a desire to fight against sin and not serve it. Faith in the heart follows the word and hates sin, for it is contrary to God and is an impediment to serving Christ. Remember Romans 7. Paul's dis discussing himself as a Christian. He says, I I'm converted to Christ. I love the law now. That, but that which I love, I find myself sinning. And I hate sin. I don't like it. It's the flesh. Unbelief in the heart is the great soul-ruining error for the promises, rewards, and teachings that come that cause one to reject sin for Christ are not believed. True faith will make one like Moses, who chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Hebrews 11, 25-26. Here's Moses. He's the son of the Pharaoh. He's filthy rich. Women, jewelry, mansions, anything he wanted, it was his. And he set it all aside. Because he believed the promises. He knew that he, he would lose all that. But he believed the promises about the future reward, which would not for him come until after death. Note also 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we do not look at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Where the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
die daily. Pick up your cross and follow Christ. Walk, walk the narrow road, the, ro- the difficult road. Be hated by the world, but look to the promises. Scripture teaches us that a falling away from God finds its origin, development, and impetus in unbelief. Therefore, it is crucial that we trust the Word of God and regard it as totally reliable. We must believe in the promises of rewards for obedience and covenant sanctions for disobedience. (coughs) Faith trusts in the Word and therefore obeys the Word. Unbelief rejects the Word and sees no reason to obey it. Unbelief chooses human autonomy and sin over faith and obedience. Faith leads to blessings and eternal life. Unbelief leads to apostasy, covenant curses, and eternal death. Faith leads to a distinctly Christian ethic, worldview, way of life. Unbelief leads one straight back into the world and its lusts, vanities, sins, and darkness. The person who steals, commits adultery, or murder does so because he believes there are no consequences for such wicked actions. The person who abandons the faith and mocks Christ does so because he does not believe in an infinite personal God who judges sin. Puritan New England. We're talking about the 1600s before they started to decline and apostatize. The divorce rate, I studied this in seminary, the divorce rate in Puritan New England was 0.01%, something like that. Divorce was unheard of. Adultery was virtually unheard of. People never locked their doors. Crime was almost non-existent. Because when people fear God, they don't commit crime. People of unbelief do not fear God. They do not fear the final judgment where they must stand before Christ in the great white throne. And that brings us to our next point. The importance of mutual edification. Second, Paul follows his main proposition or command with a call to mutual edification, verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For Paul, Christians have both a corporate and individual responsibility. And this is related to the nature of a church itself, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12.5. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Personal examination, obviously, is crucial. We have to do it every day. But it is not enough. Sin is so deceitful, and the flesh is so corrupt, that Christians need objective, caring, loving brothers who can help us with our weaknesses. Both by praying for us, but also by helping us identify weak areas, and then offering biblical analysis so that we can grow in the needed areas. Proverbs 27.17 As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Romans 14.19 Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. 1 Corinthians 14.26 Let all things be done for edification. Mutual concern, encouragement, loving biblical confrontation are necessary because the church is full of people who are in the process of sanctification and people who must constantly fight against sin. Churches are made up of saved sinners. Yeah, you're justified in Christ. You have a title to heaven. You're going to go right to heaven when you die. But you're still imperfect 
personally. This process applies not simply to moral declension, complacency, or lukewarmness, but also doctrinal errors and compromises in worship. If Christians in the post-apostolic church had been more diligent regarding departures in doctrine and worship, the rise of the Roman Catholic Antichrist beast would not have occurred. There's an attitude among professing Christians. This has been a problem throughout the ages. Oh, it's up to the pastor and elders. They do everything. We're here. We come and we see the sermon. We sing some songs and we go home. No, it's a body. And they're active. They, first of all, the people choose the pastor and the elders. So they have a responsibility to choose people who are solid and are not teaching error. And they have a responsibility, if their pastor and elders err, to stand up to them and not let it occur. Exhortations, admonishments, rebukes are not a function reserved only for the leaders of the church. Mature Christians should disciple immature and weak Christians. It is crucial, however, that such things must be done out of a humble spirit of Christian love. Churches today are full of gossip, backbiting, and slander because of pride and a lack of real Christian love. Instead of speaking to a person privately about a sin or error, most professing Christians today choose rather to gossip about it behind a person's back. That is very sad, but it is true. It's hard to approach somebody privately and say, Hey, hey Bob, I think you've got a problem about here. Let's, let's discuss this. Maybe we, I can help you with this. It's much easier to just gossip about it behind his back and not even approach him. But do you help Bob by doing that? No. You just simply destroy his reputation. Instead of speaking to a person privately about a sin or error, most professing Christians today choose rather to gossip about it. This reveals that Christian love is totally lacking and that such people are not really concerned about the edification of the body of Christ. Gossip and slander doesn't edify anybody. It just divides churches. They put others down in order to feel better about themselves. With Matthew 18, and that's where... 15 and following, where Christ teaches the process of dealing with sin in the church, Christians are treated with compassion and are given three separate occasions to repent. Only if all this fails because there has been no repentance is the person excommunicated and treated as an unbeliever. So you don't gossip about him behind his back, destroy his reputation, and then shun him when you're supposed to approach him privately and try to work to help him be a better Christian. But instead, Christians like to just gossip and destroy people behind their back and feel better about themselves when they're simply totally violating Scripture and acting with hate, not with love. Paul says, and this is from uh, 1 Thessalonians 5:11 and 14 to 15, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. What a great command. The whole local body of believers is to lovingly and diligently do everything they can so that sin and declension will be nipped in the bud and not be allowed to develop into apostasy like the Israelites in the wilderness. Now I acknowledge it's not easy to confront somebody. You got to do it privately. You got to do it out of love. You got to pray about it. You don't gossip about it. You don't talk about it to other people. You talk to the person privately, in person. 
That's not easy. It's uncomfortable. But that's what the Bible requires. And because Christians are not willing to confront people in person, they end up gossiping about it behind their back. They don't help the person. They don't love the person. They don't help the church be edified. They simply sow destruction and division in the church. Paul's words in Philippians 2.1-4 are helpful in this area. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. What a great passage. Regard others as more important and better than yourself. Have a humble spirit, a loving spirit. And if you do that, you're not going to trash them behind their back and ruin their reputation. You're going to try to help them. All churches have an obligation to mutually keep watch over every believer in their midst to make sure there are no beginnings of backsliding morally or doctrinally. And the Old Testament counterpart to Matthew 18 is probably Leviticus 19.17, which is a wonderful passage. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The Hebrew here is emphatic. Rebuking you shall rebuke him. Plainly and effectively with biblical arguments, careful reasonings, loving pleas to repent, we must confront the wayward Christian. Not gossip about him. Love him. This is the context we all hear. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christ repeats it in the New Testament. He's asked about it. Well, here's the passage. Here's the context. It means you're not going to gossip about your, your, your neighbor, your believing brother. You're going to confront him in a, a loving way. <clears throat> Note that the Leviticus passage equates not communicating to the person in person and holding a grudge or gossiping as hatred. The very opposite of love. This passage also teaches that if we do not personally make the attempt to communicate and help a brother, then we make ourselves complicit and guilty of his sin. And Ezekiel agrees with this. He says to, to watch, be a watchman. And he says if you're a watchman and you don't warn the people, you have their blood on your hands. So somebody in the church begins to backslide and you see it, you're his friend. And you do nothing? Or even worse, you gossip about it behind his back and simply trash him? What a rotten Christian that guy is. He's a rotten Christian. I saw him at the bar the other day. He was drunk. He was dancing with some loose pagan chicks. No. You go to him privately and you work with him. You, you help retrieve your brother. Matthew 18. You got, 90, you got 100 sheep. One of them goes astray. What does the guy do? He goes after the, the, the one that strays and retrieves him. And it says the angels rejoice in heaven when that person repents. Are our hearts ruled by Christ's love that seeks to retrieve lost sheep? 
by speaking to them and making a real effort to convince them to repent? Or are we lacking this Christ-like love? Love seeks to edify, not destroy. Love puts the other person first. Love does not despise a brother. It does not reject him or gossip about him, but rather tries to help him. Most professing Christians today, tragically speaking, are quick to hate, quick to condemn, quick to gossip, because they reject Matthew 18 and Leviticus 19 and our text Hebrews 3.12. Now I know this because there's people that have gossiped about me and they're, they're saying things, 98% of what they say about me is not even true. And I, these people have never came to me once and said, hey Brian, I think you've got a problem here. You know, uh, let's talk about this. No, Brian's a scumbag and we're going to destroy Brian. Well, that's not a Christian attitude. Are you not concerned to see to it that the same members of the local body with you are kept healthy and alive? That they are kept from rotting? From being cut off and burned before your very eyes on the day of judgment? Let us show forth the fruits of Christian love in these days of widespread evil and apostasy. We are not to tolerate sin or heresy, but to confront it biblically. This attitude, this non-doctrinal spirit today, which is, uh, hey, you're, 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 you've accepted heresy? That's no big deal. We all have different views. That's not a Christian attitude. Professing Jewish Christians before AD 70 especially were pressed by unbelieving relatives, family members, Jewish leaders, community leaders, from every side, to abandon Jesus in the gospel. They needed encouragement, positive reinforcement, and admonishment when necessary to not be discouraged or tempted to fall back. You have to understand how strong families were back then. To be cast out of your family was a just horrible thing. But it was necessary, and Christ predicted it in the gospel. He says, you're going to be hated by your own mother and father. You're going to be hated by your brothers and sisters. But if you're not willing to confess me before men, my Father will not confess you on the day of judgment. False religions are nothing more than successful cults. They want to isolate people from the community of Christians in order to deceive them, to go back into the world. When believers come together for worship, when believers come together for worship and fellowship, not simply they come not simply to praise God and hear expositional preaching, but also to encourage each other and to stand uh, up to such assaults. In the healthy Christian atmosphere of Christian fellowship, especially with knowledgeable, mature Christians present, the arguments of the world are truly appraised and revealed to be worthless. Corporate watchfulness, corporate edification, corporate warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil is necessary for mutual strength and a persevering obedience. So make sure you're, you have that attitude of love that wants to help, but also make sure when somebody confronts you about your problems, because we're all sinners, that you don't get upset about it and you take it properly. This topic is so important that Paul calls on us to work on it every single day. Our loyalty, perseverance, through self-examination, and corporate sanctification must continue as long as it is called today. And of course, in the context, this means as long as the present period of God's grace endures. The word today is, for Israel, meant 40 years. This is an allusion to Psalm 95, quoted in verse 7, which 
in this chapter of Hebrews. The day for the Jews to believe and act on that faith by being covenantally faithful lasted one generation or 40 years. They had 40 years. And they failed. Except for Joshua and Caleb and, of course, the children of those people. Interestingly, the period between the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ until the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem was almost precisely 40 years. Jesus was born around 3-4 B.C. He died around A.D. 30 and rose. And Israel was completely destroyed 40 years later in A.D. 70. Almost identical. And in Matthew 24, Jesus describes the preachers of the gospel as messengers to gather Christians out of the land, the four corners of the land of Israel. They had one generation to repent. Those who didn't repent were destroyed. Most Jews who believed in Christ to remain covenantly faithful and thus persevered through thick and thin were saved from destruction by the Romans because they believed Jesus' words, his sermon for Matthew 24, and we know it's a fact, they fled to Pella and escaped the destruction. There was a break in the fighting. They all left the city. They snuck out, all the Christians. They fled to Pella, and they were saved. Not one Christian died. The Jews, of course, stayed, and they were all slaughtered. Over two and a half million Jews were slaughtered. That's a lot. The day or period of divine forbearance will not last forever. It will be succeeded by another day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. <clears throat> Those who fell away and counted the cross of Christ as worthless will face Jesus on his white lustrous throne on that day of judgment. The coming judgment is not a problem for Christians because their sins have been washed away by Jesus' sacrificial blood. Christ's perfect righteousness has been imputed to them or reckoned to them, to their account. So when they stand before God in the day of judgment, what does God see? Does he see all your failures, all your sins, all your stupid things you've done as a Christian, your failures, your sins? No. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. You're safe. You're safe. But those who rejected the Savior, they're going to die in their sins and they must suffer the curse of the law. They will be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then point number three, the deceitfulness of sin. Third, Paul gives us a reason why we need to obey his exhortation. The deceitfulness of sin, verse 13b says, Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The drift toward unbelief and apostasy is strengthened or furthered by sin. Sin has a strong power to deceive the one who gives into it. Sin has this power because of our fallen nature. The mind is tempted by sin as it comes in contact to or in agreement to sin as it does uh, it does so with careful, clever, subtle rationalizations. Before Eve fell, she was tempted, of course, by the devil, and she convinced herself that God's command not to eat of the forbidden fruit was unreasonable. She looked at the fruit. Wow, this fruit looks beautiful. It looks delicious. It looks healthy. It doesn't seem right that I should deny myself this fruit. She used autonomous human reason instead of the Word of God. And then she used autonomous empiricism or science, that is apart from the Word of God, and she made her own judgment that the fruit was not sinful and it was good. How could God forbid, forbid such a beautiful, delicious fruit? 
She analyzed reality autonomously through the lens of her unlawful desires. Sin is like a woman who presents herself to a man as a beautiful, chaste virgin, who wants to help him and serve him, but in reality is an ugly, conniving, wicked whore who has come to use him and abuse him. Sin deceives because it seeks to convince us that it is good for us when in fact it is taking us off the narrow path of Christian discipleship and putting us on the broad road that leads to destruction. Sin does not present itself to our minds as vile rebellion against God, as ethically hideous and perverse, nor does it reveal its horrible consequences. <clears throat> it comes with self-deception. Sin is deceitful because our old man, the flesh, is deceitful. Since our hearts are deceitful and sin is deceitful, we are in peril. If we ignore this tragic fact and do not carefully watch against sin, temptation, and an evil heart of unbelief. As we read in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Paul calls pagan philosophy vain deceit in Colossians 2.8. Sin enters deceptively in order to entice the believer to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Sin presents itself as something good, attractive, beneficial, desirable. It comes and attempts to make an alliance with our flesh, the old man, in order to convince us that sin will lead to a blessing. Satan himself appears as an angel of light with clever arguments why peace with sin is necessary and a good idea. But God's word speaks of deceitful lust, Ephesians 4.22, the deceitfulness of riches, Matthew 13.22. For their innate depravity causes men to prefer material wealth and the worldly praise it receives to vital godliness and heavy, heavenly happiness. So we read of the, deceive, the deceivableness of unrighteousness, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, the lascivious practices of former professors who are, who are called their own deceivings, 2 Peter 2.13. And this is one of the principal characteristics of sin. It deceives. It deceives. People sin because they foolishly believe that something good will come of it, whether pleasure or money or power or influence. But that which may be sweet to the tongue will be very bitter in the stomach. And that is why God's law comes with a list of covenant blessings for obedience and covenant curses for disobedience so that the Jews would not be taken in by the flesh's argument for sin. Can drugs be fun? Sure. Heroin feels real good. Is fornication fun? Well, in the beginning. All sins are fun in the beginning. But they lead down the road to slavery, to Satan, and death. Don't be deceived. Sin is deceitful because it comes with so many false promises. Sin is a bold and strategic liar. It promises liberty but delivers slavery. It promises light and enlightenment but brings darkness and a self-imposed ignorance. It promises paradise but turns society into a hell on earth. It promises the good life, free of God's restrictions, but brings chaos, antinomianism, and crime. Look at the rock stars. Look at the jazz stars who became heroin addicts and drug addicts and destroyed their lives and their families. And they called that freedom. No, it's slavery. Sin keeps none of its promises because it is rooted in a lie and, it, and it's false through and through. Holiness is founded upon truth, but wickedness is founded on deception, propaganda, blatant lies. 
It promises a heaven of pleasures, but inflicts the torments of hell. The wicked person who has given himself over to sin is on the wide, easy road to destruction. He thinks much of himself. He thinks he is liberated. He thinks he's a free thinker. He thinks he's a true intellectual. But in reality, he is a self-deceived, ignorant fool. These atheists I watch on YouTube, I, I, I think I wanna, what I want to do is write something about these guys and get their quotes. Because their arguments are absolutely foolishness. They don't know epistemology. They don't know philosophy. They don't know what they're talking about. They're idiots. But people love it because people are looking for an excuse to sin. He's like a man rushing down the highway at 80 miles per hour to a great chasm with no bridge. With a laugh, he mocks God. He mocks Jesus Christ. He mocks the Bible, not recognizing that a time is coming when he must face judgment before Christ's throne. Sin is a cunning enemy because it is so deceitful. Therefore, we must watch against it and warn each other against it constantly. And then one more point. I know I've gone on a while. Fourth, the deceitful hardening power of sin. Fourth, Paul wants us to be aware that this deceitfulness has a hardening power over the heart. The heart becomes accustomed to sin and rebellion. There is a reduced sensitivity of conscience. Sin becomes more and more acceptable. Unbelief and doubts become easier to live with, for unbelief and sin go hand in hand. Unbelief leads to sin, and sin hardens the heart, leading to more unbelief. It is a vicious process that destroyed Israel in the wilderness. The insensibility towards sin leads eventually to an insensibility to the gospel. Those who once trembled under the word of God no longer tremble. The fear of God has dissipated with the love of sin and the hardening of the heart. All of this strengthens unbelief and the process toward apostasy. A man caught in this declension who does not repent begins to doubt the Bible, the atonement, the resurrection, and even the existence of God. This truth makes him uneasy in his sinful ways, and so he begins to doubt the truth. He suppresses it in unrighteousness. Then he stops hanging out with serious Christians and seeks out unbelievers or other evil men to be his companions. When a professing Christian on the way down joins himself to unbelievers, he joins himself to those who encourages unbelief and his lifestyle of sin and rebellion. That's why we looked at this last week, or the week before, how people who apostatize become the most determined critics of Christianity and the Bible. Not because they have the truth on their side. They do not have the truth. They're liars. But because they're justifying wickedness. They're justifying their sinful lifestyle. The blatant unbelief, praise of sin, and loose attitude towards immorality, drugs, profanity, drunkenness, fornication, etc., homosexuality, of the unbelieving friends will take him down the road that previously he was afraid to go. And then we come to just briefly application. I know I've gone on here. Just very brief application. The history of Israel in the Christian church makes it crystal clear that accepting sin, hardening, and apostasy have been continuous problems for the visible church. The history of the Christian church is a history of apostasy. The Roman Catholic Church did not start out as a satanic beast that persecuted true Christians. It didn't start out that way. It became that way over hundreds of years. Paul relates the Jewish example in the wilderness. And this process that leads to apostasy in order to warn us of what not to do and how to avoid this path toward the abyss. Some of the things that to keep in mind are as follows. First, we must use our minds and live in a manner <coughs> that strengthens faith in Christ and the Word of God. 
<clears throat> there must be a study of and meditation on the word, as well as a faithful attendance upon all the means of grace. The preaching of the gospel, the sacraments. Faith must be nurtured and exercised so that one is not tempted toward unbelief and sin. Professing Christians who do not study scripture and nurture their faith are not only often ignorant of Christian doctrine and duties, but also leave themselves open to all sorts of serious errors. The apostasy rate for modern evangelicals, especially young adults, is exceptionally high. It's shocking. It's like 70%. Because their knowledge of scripture and doctrine is so very low. You see these young people who don't study, they don't, know, they don't know theology, they don't know apologetics, they don't know the Bible, and these intellectual atheists eat their lunch. When we have all the good arguments, they have no good arguments. They can't even uh, account for logic and reasoning. They can't even account for ethics. They can't account for anything. Their worldview is nihilism. Scripture is easy to defend. The more we know it, and the Christian world and life view. The easier it is to trust in it and live by it. Biblical faith is not a blind leap in the dark, but is fully rational. It is the only worldview or philosophical system that accounts for reality and glorifies God. Second, whenever we encounter doubts or have a problem with sin, we must confess it to God immediately and repent daily. The worst thing a professing Christian can do is to make peace with sin and doubts. We must make no excuses for sin, but rather correctly identify and cry out, Lord, I have sinned. Now, if you want to learn how to repent, Paul discusses this beautifully in Ephesians chapter 4. you got a problem with drunkenness, you, you know, you've got to put that off, and you've got to be joyful by praising God. you got a problem with fornication, what does Paul say? you got to get, well, that's Corinthians. He says you got to get married. If you got a problem with lust, get a wife, lust after your wife. That's lawful, that's good. You got a problem with lying? Speak the truth in love. You got a problem with theft? You get a good solid job, so not only can you provide for yourself, but you got to be able to help others. You put off, put on principle. The sign of going down the road to apostasy is when professing Christians redefine sin so that it appears not as sin. This redefinition is most obvious in the acceptance of sexual immorality and corruption in worship. Okay, the Roman Catholics worship the Virgin Mary. It's rank idolatry. They worship the Virgin Mary. But they, they have they have terms in Latin to try to excuse it. Well, the worship of God, that's hyperdulia. But the worship of Mary, that's just dulia. <laughs> that's complete nonsense. That's complete nonsense. Evangelicals presently do not accept homosexuality, but they have already caved into easy divorce for no cause and feminism. And fornication among young professing evangelicals is rampant. It's a real problem. We must see the evilness and rebelliousness of sin and not make attempts to accept it. By sticking to exactly what the Bible teaches and being honest with ourselves about our own sins and failings, we will maintain a tender heart, a conscience informed by God's moral law, not our antinomian hedonistic culture. Yes, we all sin. We all need to do this. We all need to fight. Third, as our text declares, we must be engaged with Christian fellowship so that we can exhort one another daily. <clears throat> the worst thing one can do is hang out with unbelievers who are happy with sin and live in a satan with a satanic worldview. Paul makes this point clear in Corinthians that light and dark, Christ and Satan, God, good and evil, cannot dwell together in fellowship. 
One must have friends thoroughly dedicated to the Christian world and life view. One must have serious Christian friends who in a loving manner will encourage your faith and encourage obedience to the Word of God. We do not want friends who encourage sin and apostasy, who make light of sin, who, see the, who do not see the importance of the gospel. We must all learn to hear the truth about our sins and spiritual defects. We should all benefit from godly company and counsel. We must take a loving exhortation if we are to be preserved against the deceitfulness of sin. Christians are to speak the truth in love for edification, not destruction. One of the biggest problems in the church today, once again, is a lack of loving communication. People are happy to gossip about others behind their back, but such behavior is anti-Christian and has never helped anyone. How does gossip help a person when he doesn't even hear it? He might hear about it later when people hate him. It is hateful and destructive. And then fourth, and we'll end with this. As Jesus commanded, we are to watch and pray that we do not enter into temptation. As you all know, we are totally dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit for everything. The Holy Spirit must cause our hearts to believe and to obey the Word of God. We must study and do our part, and we must pray for the grace to follow through in what we have learned, always looking to the efficacy of Jesus' death and resurrection for the power to obey. Trust in Christ to deliver you from all sin and falsehoods. Trust in Christ to deliver you and preserve you to the very end and never give up. Trust and obey. We have to imitate Joshua and Caleb who said God is well able to deliver them into our hands. They had faith because they believed in the power of God. We should have faith because we believe in the efficacy of the cross, the efficacy of the empty tomb. The Holy Spirit comes to us. He's sent to us by Christ from heaven because of that work on the cross and the empty tomb. We have the power. But we have to pray and we have to submit. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this warning. Help us to obey your holy word. We fall short all the time, Lord. We hate this. We hate that we do that. We ask for your help. Convict us of sin. Make our hearts tender to obey your word. Give us the power to obey, to put off which is displeasing in your sight, and to put on that which is pleasing in your sight. That we could be covenant keepers, not covenant breakers, and be faithful to your holy word. To show our love of your dear son Jesus Christ for what he has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.